Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. You know, it's curriculum night at my kid's school. And I had to look up, what is curriculum night? Because we used to do back to school night, back to school night, curriculum night. I think it's kind of the same thing, but it's curriculum night, and there happens to be an NFL Thursday night football game on. And uh, I got to be honest with you, I was only uh, mildly disappointed by this because it turns out I'll be able to maybe stream this game if I know what the hell I'm doing using Amazon. It turns out that Amazon, in fact, has set up a new customer service call center, hired and trained thousands of employees. They'll be on duty tonight to field calls and help your parents and my parents troubleshoot the new product, Thursday Night Football. I'm kind of wondering if the Pac-12 Conference presidents and chancellors are going to tune in. I think they will. We talked about it a little bit on yesterday's show, but I want to dive a little deeper here in the opening segment. Amazon's paying the NFL more than a billion dollars for a package of exclusive Thursday night games. It's like 15, 16 Thursday night games. Chargers Chiefs tonight, Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, first Thursday night football game of the year carried by Amazon. And this will not be... Amazon using Fox or ESPN or somebody else using their equipment and just simulcasting their game, this will literally be a deviation from the league's traditional linear television providers, CBS, NBC, Fox, even ESPN. It's a strong move by Amazon and a wild experiment by the NFL. But I can't help but wonder how Amazon, Apple TV, YouTube, how they might factor in this Pac-12 world is the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors check out the game. Now, Amazon's supposed to do some cool things tonight, some cool features. There's supposed to be some things that are really cutting edge and high tech, and I'm just going to wait and see, do they pull it off, do they not pull it off? But I'm really interested to kind of figure out what happens, see what happens, and then try to determine whether or not it is a win for Amazon and a win for uh, the, the, the good people at the NFL. Uh, the NFL normally isn't a risk taker. And I don't think this is that big of a risk. Like, they're taking Thursday night, which we for a while thought was going to be just an absolute dud. Remember when the Thursday night games first debuted? Coaches were complaining. Players were complaining. The games were bad. We were all wondering how unfair it was for the teams to have to play these games. And in the end, it turns out that they, you know, they altered the schedule a little bit and they fixed the product. And, you know, we haven't really been having that conversation. But the NFL is making this move with Amazon, not because it wants to embrace the future of sports programming. And, and, and it, look, we're going to talk to a couple of people on today's show about the future of sports programming, including David Carter, the USC professor and sports business expert who's coming up uh, on this program in a little bit. Uh, we will talk to him about it but I think like 15 years from now we're all going to be watching games and streaming games but the question is how does and and how do the 
networks themselves, the leagues themselves, how do they get there? And how do they bridge that, you know, and, 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 and how, how soon is too soon when you talk about streaming games? Because if I talk to my younger listeners, you're all going, yeah, I got no problem. I can be in the gym. I can stream a game. I can be at my house. I can stream a game. You can stream a game. But it was interesting because I wrote about it this morning at johnconzano.com, and I wrote this column about what I think is going to happen and what I think the Pac-12 is doing. And in the comment section, immediately – there were 60 to 70-year-old people who were commenting, going, hey, can anybody help me on how to stream the game? And I think those are conversations that are going to be happening here in the next three, four, five, seven, ten years as everybody sort of gravitates towards streaming a game and being able to get the games. And I know there are some of you out there that probably are overwhelmed with the idea of trying to find a game on Amazon Prime. How do I find it? How do I get it? How do I stream it? Do I have to have Prime? Do I have to have Amazon? Do I have to have an app? Do I have to buy a new TV? Like all those questions are coming up in the comment section. And what you find is, no, you don't need a new TV. You just need minor tweaks. You just need to know what you're looking for and what you're doing in order to find it. But is this a, is this a venture that the Pac-12 is willing to go on with its fan base? Because we had the news yesterday that came out of that uh, sports business um, sports business podcast that Andrew Marchand does and and uh, does it with a, another sports business journalist and they were kind of talking about you know the idea that the Pac-12 itself uh, you know might be light years away or hundreds of millions of dollars away from ESPN when it comes to a negotiation an ongoing negotiation for the conference's media rights we all know kind of how that is unfolding, but here was Marchand yesterday talking about the Pac-12 and ESPN. Listen carefully to this. I think the Pac-12 and ESPN, hundreds of millions of dollars apart. They are not even close. So that is going to be interesting uh, where that goes uh, in terms of negotiations and will teams jump? Because when you're that far apart, that means something has to happen. And I'm not saying it's going to happen. I don't have information on this, but something just maybe a little conjecture do one of the digital players get involved with uh, the Pac-12, right? Apple, for example, loves to buy everything and then sell subscriptions, and they did that with the MLS. The Pac-12 just had this problem of not being, you know, with the Pac-12 network, and you couldn't find it, and it's, you know, obviously not as successful as the ones that partnered with uh, Fox or ESPN. But money talks, and if Apple can make the case that we're going to pay you, we're going to bundle uh, the Pac-12, and they can get the money that they're looking for, uh, maybe that maybe they come into the picture. But right now, the issue for the Pac-12 and perhaps the Big 12 as well is just leverage. There it is, leverage. That's what this is about, in my opinion. I think Marchon is a good journalist. He works at the New York Post. He's East Coast-based. I think you know he's a guy who's plugged in, particularly with ESPN, also East Coast-based. Um, I think that there's a chance here that this is being leaked to him through ESPN and that, our, you know, if I'm reading the tea leaves, I'm sort of reading that ESPN is trying to publicly negotiate or put some pressure on the Pac-12. Simultaneously, I think the Pac-12 is trying to create leverage. I think the Pac-12 is probably going to tune into tonight's game on Amazon and rave about how awesome it is and maybe even talk next week a little bit about the streamers and the digital programming that is out there. Do I think the Pac-12 wants to go fully all in, all of its rights with a streaming service? No, I don't. I think they want to be on linear television. 
But I think they know in about three or five years before this media rights deal is up that there's going to be a movement towards Amazon, Apple, Google, whatever else pops up and emerges. And I think that they want to be well positioned there and maybe even at the forefront of it. So is it too soon to go all in? Probably. And I wrote that today. Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network president, says he thinks it's too, a little too early to go all in. But I would not be surprised to see the Pac-12 conference give its Pac-12 Network's content to a streamer. Sell it outright. Hey, you can have it all, Apple. You can have it all, Amazon. We will go with a linear television provider, probably ESPN, with the rest, like the Tier 1 stuff. But you're going to see a whole bunch of programming that is going to be available on Amazon and Apple. I think that's where it's headed. I think that there are going to be some people who are a little uncomfortable with it. But if you think about what the, the question that the Pac-12 is facing right now, it has access to the playoff with the expansion of the playoff. So that, that check that box. That thing's off the to-do list. The other thing that's to do is to generate as much cash as possible. And I don't think the distribution is as important to the Pac-12 as it is to some others. We have already dealt with the Pac-12 network, which had horrible distribution. We already know that the Pac-12 is located in the Pacific time zone, which creates a distribution problem by itself because the East Coast is in bed sleeping at 11.30 Pacific time. So I think you already have a distribution challenge. And so I do expect that the Pac-12 is going to chase money. It's going to chase money, and I think it's going to chase technology. I'll be curious to see what this conference does in the next few days, and in particular next week. I would expect that the Pac-12 will be doing some talking next week based on what we heard this week. That's just a hunch, but I think that's where we are. We have a great show today. Coming up next, you're going to hear from David Carter. He is a professor at USC. He is a sports business and sports marketing expert. I want to ask him, like, the reaction to USC to the Big Ten. How did that go over on his own campus? We'll also talk about the streaming services. How uh, ambitious can the Pac-12 be? Jaden Grant, Oregon State team captain, coming up this hour as well. In hour two, check this out. Nick Cody, former Oregon offensive lineman, will be with us. He has turned into a stand-up comedian. He is on at 4 o'clock. He's making an appearance. He's doing a show in Eugene in conjunction with this weekend's BYU-Oregon game. Nick Cody, funny guy, and offensive lineman, 4 o'clock. And Dan Lanning, the Oregon football coach, will be with us at 4.15. So if you want good interviews and a fast-moving show, you're in the right place. Plus... I've made my picks on the Pac-12 front. You can find them at johnconzano.com. But I'm asking Stephen and Sean to look at my picks. Just put out this afternoon my Pac-12 picks. Last week, by the way, I went 10-1 and in games just picking the winner. Not so good against the spread, but we're not talking about that. 10-1 uh, and in just picking the winners. I want Sean and Stephen to look at my picks. Tell me one they agree with totally. And tell me one they think I'm crazy on. All of that still ahead, but David Carter, USC professor and author, is coming up next. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. David Carter is a national authority on sports business, strategic marketing. He's written a bunch of books. He is a professor at USC, and he's a guy that I think can talk a little bit about all the stuff we've been talking around as it relates to the Pac-12 conference and marketing and sports business. David, thanks for making some time for us. Great to be with you. Let's talk. I mean, uh, you know, first and foremost, you know, the Pac-12 is amid a media rights negotiation, and 
There's some strategy out there. Chase the money, chase the distribution, chase traditional media, you know, protect your brand. Where does your brain go when we talk about the balance of the landscape and the Pac-12 strategy? Well, I think you're right. It's a little bit of a game of musical chairs. And the goal for all these conferences is to figure out where they want to be when the music stops. And I think right now, if you're the Pac-12, your goal needs to be to remove as much uncertainty as possible. Because when there's uncertainty, it makes it difficult to lock down the media contracts. It makes it difficult to figure out uh, who you'll be able to keep in your conference or who you'll be able to attract to your conference. And so the sooner that they can get some of that clarity, uh, the better. And, and certainly they've lost a step or two based on the aggressive nature of the Big Ten and the SEC over the course of the last year or so. Do you think it's been a mistake? George Klyovkov, he came out on Media Day in L.A. and he talked, and then he has just been silent since. And I've kind of wondered as some of the other conference commissioners have done interviews and been out there, been more outspoken, is it a mistake to let other people kind of control that narrative, or is it wise to sit back until you have something really substantial to talk about? Well, I think that's a strategic decision that the conference is going to make, and he'll be informed on how to go about that from the chancellors and presidents and even his athletic directors. And so I think it's a uh, potentially a very good strategy. You don't necessarily need to tip your hand. Uh, a lot of times in these situations there is purposeful uh, misinformation distributed you don't really know what's going on and and there could be an awful lot of intrigue when nothing is being said it makes a lot of people wonder if a deal is about to be announced or if uh, there is something cagey going on and so there's a lot to read into it one way or the other and, and that's just going to be the way it works and for the pac-12 that's going to be their uh, short-term policy is to, to likely wait until they have something meaningful to say I want to drill down a little bit on Oregon and Washington in particular. You know, you've done advising, consulting, teaching over the years. You know, what would you tell Oregon and Washington, you know, as this playoff is expanding, access to the playoff now available to them, media rights money out there, which of those things is more important in your mind, access to the postseason or the money? Well, I think the way I would look at it is do you want to be a big fish in a medium pond or – a medium fish in a big pond by being in the in the Big Ten, for example. And and clearly they may have a better opportunity of making the playoff if they stay in uh, a, a conference like uh, you know the Pac-10 or whatever the new name of it will be at some point. Uh, uh, or do they get a little bit lost in the sauce by being in the Big Ten? And, and in exchange for that, picking up a lot of guaranteed revenue from the media as being one of the two major, uh, a member of one of the two major conferences. So I think, again, it reverts back to What's the university president think? What do the uh, trustees believe is the right move for their brand, for what they're trying to accomplish as a school, uh, how they want to balance athletics and academics? And increasingly, uh, that balance teeters virtually entirely towards athletics and, and the revenue that comes from it. I think if you go back many years, there was this delineation, I guess, between this collegiate model, which was balancing academics and athletics, and this professional model, which is really the pursuit of uh, profits and, and growing your, your franchise value and so forth. And most of college athletics at, at the big-time level now is all about that professional model. So if you're Oregon and Washington, you have to ask yourself, just how willing are we to veer entirely towards that professional model? And I sense they're more than willing to do that if they can cut the right financial deal. It's really interesting. Again, we're talking to David Carter, USC sports business professor and author. It's interesting to look at 
Thursday night football tonight. Amazon will be carrying it first time ever. You got Al Michaels, 77 years old, doing something new. It's available only on Amazon Prime unless you're in those NFL markets. But there's a billion dollars attached to that for the NFL. And I think, you know, all these entities, Major League Soccer, we saw them pivot towards a deal with Apple and a streamer. Is it too early to go to a streamer? Is, you know, would it be viewed as innovative? Would it be viewed as, uh, you know, this is a mistake, there's no distribution? If the Pac-12 went that route. Well, I think you're seeing throughout sports, including the NFL, which you mentioned, is that although they're streaming on Thursday nights for uh, a boatload of money, they are still uh, incentivized, financially incentivized, to have uh, uh, this coexistence between traditional broadcast and cable uh, and streaming because it's going to take time for all of their sports fans uh, to migrate and appreciate the, the need to stream these uh, these games. It works for a lot of folks right now, and it, it will be commonplace uh, maybe 10 years from now. But to go too quickly towards streaming, you're going to leave a lot of money on the table. Mm. And if you move too slowly towards streaming, you're also going to leave a lot of money on the table. So it's these media companies that are trying to thread the needle and figure out when is the optimal time to make that uh, more complete transition? And for college sports, uh, you know, they've, they've certainly been a little slower than, say, the NFL has been. But they're also targeting a different market. Their, their brands, again, are different. What they're hoping to get out of these universities are different. But over time, they're going to look and feel very much like the NFL and the NBA. And from that standpoint, streaming will be the way to go, but not quite yet entirely. Brett Yormark, a Big 12 commissioner, came to his conference from, you know, Jay-Z's Rock Nation. George Klyovkov, the Pac-12, he came from MGM Sports and Entertainment. These are, uh, these are not campus administrators who have moved through the ranks like we saw in the old days. Uh, these are, this is a different animal we're dealing with. What do, you, what do you think is happening there with conference commissioners? Well, I, in an interesting way, maybe you could argue that they're not bogged down by tradition. Uh, they are seeing uh, athletics uh, generally as uh, content to be distributed and monetized, and they're less tied to the historic uh, programs and, and what college sports uh, used to stand for in that old collegiate model we were talking about. And, and they take uh, a very different approach to it as to how, where can we drive value for our shareholders. That, that is not the way college sports used to be thought of. And I think the other thing that's interesting when you highlight the backgrounds, whether from Rock Nation or MGM or, or uh, even some of the other Power Five commissioners, really important to understand that they do not know each other all that well relative to the predecessors who were on their jobs for a much longer period of time. They, they were, yes, they argued and all that, but they knew one another. They were somewhat of a cohesive group in terms of understanding what their uh, negotiating platforms would be and, and kind of how they were wired. Uh, and now you've got this mixed bundle of, of essentially five commissioners. Um, how is this contributing to their calculations when trying to figure out conference switching or cutting a deal? How is it affecting negotiations? Um, they're bringing a very different mindset to this, and they're doing so now negotiating with and among partners that they don't know that come from different walks of the sports business realm. You're in that USC world. I'm, I'm fascinated by kind of what the fallout has been as USC move, you know, announces it's going to the Big Ten. Is this something that you will be talking about as you're a professor at USC or dealing with or, you know, just among faculty and friends? Uh, what was the reaction to that? 
Well, you know, the reaction I think was different among some of the groups that, that you talked about. But yeah, I think if you are really sober about it and you look at the financial opportunity at hand, uh, it is a no-brainer. And I think that that it, it just underscored uh, the extent to which college athletics is moving towards uh, a full full-throated profit uh, orientation, and and they're unabashed about talking about what that means for recruiting and for facilities um, and for new sponsor deals and, and all the rest of it. So the fans can get caught up in it for a split second and hand-wring, but I always get back to the fact that ultimately almost none of those hand-wringers, those pearl clutchers as they're called, ever really changed their consumption patterns. Did anybody give up their USC season tickets, UCLA? Uh, Doubtful. They might complain about it, but let's look at the uptick in business and fandom going forward, and that's likely to tell uh, a very compelling story. That's really, uh, really a great point. Uh, we're talking to David Carter, USC professor and author. Uh, the NIL world—it's—it's uh, it's mercurial. Where is this headed? It feels dicey. There, there's been some ads who have said we need congressional uh, intervention here. Um, you know, when you look at the NIL world, what do you see happening? Where is this going? Well, certainly there have been a lot of unintended consequences that, that I think if you had sat back and really taken a look at it, you could have uh, conceptualized uh, how, how we were going to end up where we were today. Maybe not with the specific examples of these collectives and of these boosters getting actively involved and, and a whole bunch of other things that are going on, to your point, that make it seem, as a colleague told me yesterday, uh, murky and muddy. And, and I think when things are murky and muddy in sports business, it lends itself to a great business opportunity. That disruption uh, can be very, very good for business. And so uh, what you're really seeing is people trying to take advantage of this movement, this migration from paying athletes under the table to paying them over the table. And clearly it's not as simple as that, and it's not as uh, uh, not to you know, connotate that this is entirely unethical, but they're really trying to figure out how can they improve the plight of their rosters using a whole bunch of mechanisms to do that. So can the NCAA really credibly come in and, um, and do this, or is it too late? The land grab has been going on, you know, for a year. And so what can the NCAA really do uh, to, to stop what they think is a race to the bottom, whereas some of the other folks in the industry think it's a race to the top? Um, can the NCAA uh, close loopholes like, like the IRS does? Well, we all know when the IRS closes loopholes, People have been taking advantage of it for years, and it's kind of hard to get that genie back in the bottle. You mentioned Congress. Can they facilitate the right kind of change? Um, you know, every time there's some sort of rule or reg, people find a way around it until that loophole is closed. And so I think it's a, going to be a real challenge now that we've had a year or two of, of uh, a solid year or so anyway of, of student-athletes being able to uh, take advantage of, uh, of their own name, image, and likeness. TV is interesting, and we talk about it on this show all the time, how TV money has changed the calculus. And it feels like TV's in control, kickoff times, where the games are, how is it you know, distributed, uh, where can we see the games, what's the brand? It's hard to, uh, hard to not think about the Golden Goose getting killed here, David. So, you know, where, any concerns about the role of television as TV infuses so much money into, into sports? Well, I think, I think the fact that it infuses so much money into sports is uh, a benefit 90% of the time and a detriment uh, 10% of the time and largely to those that are on the outside looking in. Uh, 
it, what's happened over the last couple of decades, uh, you know, without getting into the weeds, of the big Supreme Court uh, uh, ruling that allowed and essentially accelerated conference realignment, conference networks, and, and got us to where we are today with this, uh, you know, uh, overarching business opportunity from media dollars flowing to teams and the conferences and so forth. So what's happened lately, it's just reinforcing what the marketplace has been all about really for about 25 or 30 years. The power base is shifting uh, and, and being uh, further memorialized as these big media companies controlling a lot of it, where they play, when they play, who they play. But I also find that rather amusing. Um, they, on the one hand, uh, and I'm saying maybe college sports in general, complains about uh, this unpredictability but they don't complain about it when they're signing the back of the check. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, they're all going, hey, this is problematic, and we're on our way to the bank right now to, to put a billion dollars in the bank. David Carter is at USC. He's a professor. He's an author. Uh, he has joined us over the years to help shed light on sports and business. Um, I'm going to be watching tonight's Thursday Night Football and you know, seeing how it feels on Amazon, and I'm sure a lot of other people are as well, but... I, I think it's really really a tricky spot that the Pac-12 is in. David, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. There it is. Are you ready for some football on Amazon Prime? Are you ready? If, if Amazon backs the truck up for the Pac-12, the Pac-12 will be in the similar predicament that Major League Soccer was in once upon a time. Last spring, really. Major League Soccer had to weigh... Hey, do we want distribution? Do we want it? Do we want the glow of the worldwide leader on ESPN, or do we want the money? And you know, in the end, they took two point five billion dollars over ten years. They took the money. What will the Pac-12 do? Leave it here. Jaden Grant, team captain at Oregon State, is next. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Oregon State got it done last week. Big win into regulation. Could have tied the game and gone to overtime at Fresno State. Instead, they went for it and came up big. You rolled a Yahtzee, so to speak. Jaden Grant, Oregon State's team captain, joins us every Thursday. It's brought to you by your local owned and operated Jamba Locations. Kick off the football season. Kick off the college football Saturday weekend right with Jamba. Jamba, life is better blended. Jaden Grant with us now. What the heck, man? That was pretty exciting. What was that like to be on the field as Jack Coletto punched it in? Man, it was it was surreal. Um, you know, the game going back and forth. You know, the entire game and all the way down to the wire. You know, the offense. Credit to the offense for putting together really two um, tremendous two-minute drives. And uh, you know, especially there that last play at the end. You know, the hammer going ahead and uh, punching it in for the win. So it was just a, a crazy experience um, and uh, one I'll definitely remember. You went Instagram live after the game. You just you just had some music. You just lo- you're just mad dogging the uh, the camera. You didn't really say anything. Uh, <laughs> you're marching into week three already, weren't you? Yeah, man. I think that was just um, you know, like I said, the back and forth of the game. Just you know, so many emotions after the game. You know, we were so also happy to really you know get out of there with that with, with the dub. Um, so yeah, it, it was a cool experience, but you know, like we say, we're, we're right back to work the next day. 
what was your reaction, or I guess when did you realize Coach Smith was going to send the offense back out? And like on the sideline, the non-offensive players, what were you guys kind of whispering and bantering about as this is happening? Uh, nothing. I mean, we we know we don't have any you know control over any of that. So you know, we are all just getting ready to play defense, whether or not you know we kicked it or we um you know, try to go for the win. So, um, you know, we're all just ready for overtime. You know, if, if we were going to overtime, I think that's it. Uh, we didn't really know until they marched out there on the field. Coach Smith yesterday on the show said, you know, he, he Jack Coletta was talking to him, and he originally had called the play where Jack had uh, got a first down earlier in the game where he goes over the A-gap, and he switched the play call because Coletto said, hey, Coach, I think I think we can do this a little better. That kind of trust is unusual. Like, I don't think all coaching staffs would listen to a player and go, you know what, that's a good point, let's switch the play. What What's it like to play for a coach who believes in you like that? Oh, man, it's everything. I think it's a testament to the leadership on this team. You know, Jack Coletto being one of those guys who's, you know, obviously been in those situations so many times. He's carried the ball for us so many times on those fourth downs. Um, those those gaps and those fits and those looks, you know, like the back of his hand because we've seen him so many times. So I think it's just a two-way street. And, um, you know, him putting in the preparation and, um, you know, the attention to detail to be able to even, you know, call something out like that. And then Coach Smith trusting that because he's seen Jack's work ethic every day and he sees how, you know, he approaches the game of football. So it was a great thing. Yeah, it, Jack Coletto, you, you've tackled him, I'm sure, in, in the course of your career at Oregon State in a spring game or a practice drill or something. Uh, what's that guy like to meet uh, on the field? Uh, man, on the field, he, he, he's just uh, one of those guys who just goes. You know, he doesn't really talk much, but he's just a football player. You know, it's, whenever he's on the field, wherever he's on the field, um, you know, he just seems to be making plays. I mean, even in seven-on-seven, seven, you know, he was out wide, caught some hitches and, you know, whatnot. He's just all over the field. And, you know, one guy that, if I can sum him up, just a person that makes the most of his opportunities. Fresno State, I think it was a good challenge for you guys, especially in the secondary. I mean, Jeff Tedford is going to throw things at you. Uh, they they threw a lot at you, and that was a quality QB that you had out there. Uh, you guys withstood that. You now move on to Montana State. What do you see on film? Montana State a little different than Fresno State, aren't they? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, a lot more run game. Um, they have some good backs. Um, but, I mean, when you look at their last two games, putting up 60, 63 points, and then week one put up about 40 points, um, obviously an offense that can be very explosive. Um, so this is going to be a big a big test for us to, you know, be able to be extremely disciplined in, um, you know, what we're doing on defense and not really trying to emphasize what they're doing to us on offense. I know Corvallis isn't that far from where you grew up, but you're going to get a chance to play a game in downtown Portland at Providence Park. Is, does that mean something to you, or is, is it different, or is it just another game? I mean, obviously, um, you know, from the game aspect, it, it's just another game. You approach it just like you do, um, you know, every every other game. But, you know, all the other stuff, it, it does mean something, you know, being in Portland, getting getting to play, you know, my final year in Portland. Um, I don't remember the last time there's been a been an Oregon State game um, up in Portland, so I think that was pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, just kind of coming full circle, you know, I remember playing the state championship and semifinal game, you know, for Westland um, in 2016 over there. So it will be a cool experience getting to play there again. I think it was 1996 that that last happened. Uh, you know, you were uh, – were you even born? No. See? 
Look at that. I'm old. I, I remember that year. <laughs> so give, give it a, an idea here because, you know, there's going to be – there's a chance that some guys may look past Montana State. You're not going to like me saying that, but there's a chance no. some guys – do you do you talk about that as a team or do you just – you know that everybody takes care of their own business? No, I mean, I mean there's definitely a, a, a standard as far as how we prepare – you know, for any any team that we play against. So the same messages that, you know, we'd be echoing about film study and preparation last week or the first week is the same exact messages we're echoing this week as well. I don't think it really changes, you know, depending on the, the opponent that we're playing. Um, it's really all about us and the standard that we hold ourselves to in, in terms of our preparation. So um, that, that that's not a problem for us. We, we prepare the right way um, and, you know, kind of have a faceless opponent mentality. 2-0, and a chance to go 3-0 and this week. Uh, you guys have not been in this position, but you did something last week that you guys didn't do a lot of last year. You won on the road. How do you explain the ability to kind of pull out a game versus maybe some of the close losses you had over the years? What was different? Um, I, I think you just see, you know, the grand. And, you know, sometimes football is tricky because sometimes it really does come down to, you know, those few plays. Um, but I, I think just the togetherness and, and the response um, from both sides of the ball, um, you know, defense hungering down, you know, at times on certain drives, which was big, and then obviously, obviously the offense having our backs and responding, you know, after we gave up that two-minute touchdown to uh, go ahead and, and take the lead at the end. So I just think, you know, all putting it together and, you know, ultimately coming down to making those plays. Um, and like I said, football, it's, it's a game of inches. It can really, you know, come down to a few plays that, you know, make or break certain games. Jaden Grant with us. Uh, this segment brought to you by Jamba. Uh, how'd you guys celebrate after the game? I know Coach Riley back in the day, he would get some In-N-Out Burger. There's been some other things. Like, you're leaving Fresno. Uh, Jonathan Smith says he wanted you guys to celebrate. Like, as a team, did you guys do anything? Uh, no, we got on the plane, uh, you know, kind of scrambled get on the plane and didn't get back to Corvallis until about 4.30, so... Um, usually in those night games, regardless of where you're playing, uh, you're, you're not going to get back till pretty late. So not really any time to celebrate much. Yeah, it's a good sore though after you win a game like that. I'm sure when you get home. No, definitely those, those playing rides are a lot different. You know, coming off a W on the road. All right, Jaden. Good luck to you this week. We'll catch up with you next week uh, as conference play begins. But uh, like to see you guys three and zero, uh, and I think people are having fun. Uh, you know, sort of following your journey. Let me ask you this, though, before I, before I let you go here. Um, you know, it was it was interesting to hear, kind of the play-by-play call from Mike Parker. I don't know. Have you heard that at all yet? Have you, have you heard that play-by-play call? Uh, no, I haven't. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to cue this up, Stephen. If you can get it before me, uh, you're better than I am. But I am uh, I'm trying to. Cue this damn thing up, and here the system is frozen again. Uh, but here we go. I think I got it. Uh, let me see. There's Coletto. There's Jonathan Smith. There's Beeves Radio. There it is. Uh, okay, listen to this. I want your reaction to it. Coletto awaiting the shotgun snap. The Beavers try to win it. Coletto runs to the right. Coletto in! Touchdown, Beavers! And the Beavers defeat Fresno State! Jack Coletto, that hammer scores. The Beavers win it for the first time ever in this stadium. The Beavers win it. That ought to be your ringtone. <laughs> shout out, shout out to Mike Parker. He's a legend. Wow, that almost gives me chills listening to that. You know, hearing his 
his voice so many times on so many historic plays over the years. So, um, yeah, I'm sure that one will be up there um, for a lot of people in their books just because, you know, the excitement of the game. And, yeah, shout-out to Mike Parker again. All right, good luck to you Saturday. We'll catch you next week, Jaden. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, there it is. It's brought to you by Jamba. You know what? Uh, this college football season, stop by one of your locally owned and operated Jamba locations or download the Jamba app and start earning points now. Jamba, life is better blended. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, if you want my th- my week three winners and you are a subscriber to johnconzano.com, you already got them in your email inbox a couple hours ago. Uh, I have uh, I was very good in week one against the spread. I was very good in week two picking outright winners. But in week two, my record against the spread was five and six. <laughs> Could have flipped a coin and done done better or just as good. I went 10 and 1 though picking the winning team in week 2. My overall record this season, I'm 19 and 4 in 23 games just picking the winner. 13 and 10 though against the spread. That's uh, about 57%. I need a good performance. I need a strong performance in week 3. My picks are out. I've asked Steven and Sean to look at my picks. And pick a game that they agree with me with and pick a game where they think I'm out of my mind. Steven, you want to start with uh, picking the game that you agree with me with? I will. Uh, and it's going to be the UCLA versus South Alabama game. Um, I know a lot of people don't know a lot about South Alabama, but they came off a win at Central Michigan where they scored a lot of points. I do agree with you that UCLA will win the game, but it'll be a lot closer than the 15.5 point spread. It could even be a one-score game right there. Um, I totally agree with you that you say is going to win, but South Alabama, they have a good offense. I think they're going to keep it close in that one. Yeah, that's a Sunbelt team, and we saw the Sunbelt have a couple of big wins already this year, and I kind of I think that conference you know, is going to be competitive. I also think I don't know what to make of UCLA. I think they nap at times. Chip Kelly's never been 3-0 in non-conference play, but I think they win the game, but I'm with you at 31-20 is how I had it. And the thing about UCLA is they haven't been tested yet, right? They haven't been tested and next week, or the next game after this is two weeks away, but it's when Pac-12 season starts. So I think that has to do with it as well. Sean, do you have a game you agree with me with? Yeah, I think Utah's going to kill San Diego State, and I think they cover that 21-point spread. I don't like what I see out of the Aztecs this year. We already saw Arizona out of all teams in the Pac-12, kill San Diego State on the road. So uh, I I definitely think that Utah is going to win big there against Braxton Burmeister, Brady Hoke. I just, you know, I think Utah's on a mission. They won by, what, 70 points last week? So Yeah, this was a game they lost last year. San Diego State got them 33-30, I think it was, or 33-31, something like that last year. Uh, It ain't going to happen again. Utah at home, 21-point favorite. I have them covering. You have them covering as well? Yeah, yeah, I think they I think they killed San Diego State. That's a good point. You know, the revenge yeah. factor here from last year. Steven, now tell me where I'm out of my mind. All right, there's two that I really disagree with you. I just on. said one. Okay. Find one. Okay. <laughs> no, got, no, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I got, go one. I got one, and it's the BYU-Oregon game. Uh, oh. You have Oregon winning by one. I think Oregon wins by two scores at least. I think Oregon comes into this game and puts it on BYU. And I've talked about this numerous times, is my mind hasn't changed on what I thought Oregon was. I said they were a 9-10 to win team at the start of the year. Mm-hmm. I... 
expected them to get blown out by Georgia. It happened. I expected them to blow out Eastern Washington. It happened. So I do think that Oregon has the advantage talent-wise. I think being at Austin Stadium is a huge advantage. BYU coming off a really physical overtime game against Baylor last week, I think hurts them. I think Oregon wins by 10, 14 points in this Oof. one and uh, covers that three-and-a-half spread pretty easily. I have Oregon winning 27-26, and a lot of it is I don't feel great about this game. I, I, I don't really trust Bo Nix. I don't want Bo Nix to know that, but I don't really trust him. I, don't, I, have, you know, I, I saw him in the Georgia game, and I hated how he played. Saw him last week, and I went, yeah, but it's Eastern Washington. So I, I don't know who he is yet, and I don't know what to expect from him. BYU is pretty good defensively. I think this game's in the 20s, probably the mid to high 20s. But you have Oregon covering. I do not. I have them winning slim. Uh, how about your second one where I'm out of my mind? What was the second one? Uh, well, this is the game that Sean wanted to do. So go to Sean here real quick. All right, Sean, go we ahead. Can, we could jump on you, you at the end. You agree that I'm out of, out of my mind on this one. Yeah, right. Steve and I are together on this one, although I don't agree with Steven's yeah. uh, BYU take at all. Uh, Cal beating Notre Dame. Yeah. Uh, man, that's that's tough. Look, look, Notre Dame, they've been struggling. Obviously, they lost to Marshall. They, Marcus Freeman's yet to get a win, but this is a must-win for Marcus Freeman and the Irish. It's a bounce-back game, and Notre Dame, sure, they lost their quarterback, Buckner, but they still have far superior athletes, and they're at home. I, there's no way I can see Cal beating Notre Dame. Yeah, I mean, Sean put it perfectly right there. I, just, I don't see how this happens. Notre Dame's got to get back on the track. They can't be 0-3 to start the season. I think this is a win. And being the quarterback being out for Notre Dame, that's not going to hurt, right? Because it can't get any worse than what it's been for Notre Dame. <laughs> uh, you know, The defense is still really solid. They did show that against Ohio State. I think Cal's going to have a hard time scoring. Cal was in a one-score game against UNLV at home last week. Uh, UNLV had the ball ready to drive down the field with a few seconds left to try to tie it. I think Notre Dame gets them, and I think they get them pretty easy. Here's, what, uh, here's where my head went. Uh, Justin Wilcox. I like him as a coach. I think he's really good. I think occasionally in a season there's always a game where he wins a game he shouldn't win. And he gave Mario Cristobal fits. I just think he was a better game manager, better game planner than Cristobal was. Cristobal out-recruited him, and that's why Oregon won a bunch of games. Uh, I think Wilcox in this game is interesting because he's up against a coaching staff that's struggled. He's got a transfer quarterback in Jack Plummer. Where did he come from? Purdue. Purdue played at Notre Dame all the time. So I don't think Plummer is going to be phased by the touchdown Jesus and going to Notre Dame. I mean, this is a this is a redemption game for Plummer. I think Wilcox plus Plummer keeps Cal in this game. They're a 10.5-point road underdog. I think they're going to cover that, and I think they're going to win the game. I got them 27-24, but... Um, you know, I feel really good about them covering that spread with Plummer and, and Wilcox, but we shall see. Do you guys like uh, Cal in the points, or you think Notre Dame boat races them? I think Notre Dame wins by two touchdowns, so uh, I'd take Notre Dame. I'd mm-hmm. lay it. I just th- there's such an urgency. They're not catching Notre Dame on a uh, kind of you know look ahead of Cal game. You know, there's such a Notre Dame for, or there's such an urgency for Notre Dame and you know Marcus Freeman to win this game, and I think they're going to come out pissed off. I think they cover. Yeah, I mean, I always treat it, the betting market like a stock market, and this is by far the lowest you could buy Notre Dame at all. You know, no, no <laughs> one, no one's buying them right now, so I'll take all that stock and I'll buy the Notre Dame stock when no one wants it. <laughs> You're buying low, selling high. I exactly. like that. But buy, you, I'll buy the garbage. Don't you think like you know we talk about injury at the quarterback position or whatever, but don't you think, like, doesn't it concern you that, like, whoever beat out whoever starts and they were bad? Like, doesn't it concern you? Like, when Colorado replaced their quarterback, I was like, I don't know if I want to see the backup. 
I mean, a little bit. Uh, not at these big time schools. Not necessarily. I, I think that these guys that they have on the bench could be just as good, and maybe you know, I, it just doesn't really affect it that often. I think at the smaller schools or you know the less talented schools, yes, it matters more. But when you're bringing in five, four, four and five stars all the time, I just don't think it matters. And sometimes these five and four stars don't. Uh, you know they don't play up to their potential, yeah. and so then the backups come in and they can fill fulfill just as good as they were. Notre Dame is struggling. They're struggling to run the ball. They're struggling to stop the other team from running the ball, and they are turning the ball over. Um, you know they had three interceptions against Marshall, it killed them obviously. Um, you know here's an interesting fact that I found: like USC has yet to have a turnover. They have eight takeaways on defense. They have no giveaways. Does that change against Fresno State this week? Yes, and I was going to bring this up. I don't know how I feel about this USC-Fresno State game. Do you think that there's a chance Fresno State could come in there and pull off the upset? I know they just lost to Oregon State at home, but I do feel like Jake Hayner and those guys, man, they're going to be able to score on USC. Can they get enough stops? That's the question. If they can cause a turnover, too, they're in this game, but... You know, it seems like a game where it's a big spread, double digits. You know, I think I'd take Fresno, but I can see USC blowing them out, but I can see Fresno State winning as well. Yeah, I think to your point about, you know, you like to buy a stock when it's all beat up, USC stock I think is overvalued right now. I, You know, I, Stanford gave them two turnovers on a short field and, and still hung around a little in that game. I think if Stanford had not turned the ball over, it was a much closer game. They probably would have been, you know, probably lost, but they would have been close, but I think Fresno State is built to score, and I, I think you know the over/under in this game. I think it's like 76, 76 and a half. It's the highest total, highest total anywhere in college football. So I I have it forty-one thirty-five USC, but I think you're a turnover away from that score being flipped. And those you know again the Fresno State kids, a lot of Southern California kids that are going to come in there and go, hey, I wanted to go to USC. This is a Super Bowl for Fresno State. Let's see what they got in this game and. I'm still not sure. Not sure about USC. I'm not sure about a lot of teams in the in the conference. Like, you know, two weeks, weird competition. Not sure who Oregon is, you know. Not sure who USC is. Not sure what UCLA is. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at Oregon and going, you know, do, can I trust you in a home game against BYU? Whole bunch of that going on. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk to a funny guy, Nick Cody, former Ducks offensive lineman. He is doing some stand-up comedy. Dan Lanning coming along after that, the Oregon coach. He'll be here at 4.15, so just leave it locked in. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, back in the day, Nick Cody suited up for the University of Oregon on the offensive line. Chip Kelly era, Mark Helfrich, Nick Cody was there. He's now all grown up. He's watching his Ducks, proud alum of the University of Oregon. I think he's working for Amazon. I want to know what he thinks of the Thursday night football game. And he's doing something unique. Well, I'll let him tell you what he's doing. Nick Cody... Former Oregon offensive lineman. You excited about Thursday night football? What's the buzz around the Amazon uh, compound right now? Oh, man, I'm very excited, John. Thank you for having me on and especially for giving me the opportunity to warm up the crowd before Coach Landing. I didn't, I didn't think I'd have that opportunity this early in my young career. Opening act. Huh? Get, so give, yeah. us an, yeah, give me an idea. Before we get into this comedy stuff that you are uh, exploring, 
Give us an idea, like, you know, back in the day, Chip Kelly, Mark Helfrich era, Oregon Ducks football, how serious did it feel to be on the inside of that? Oh, always. Uh, Not just serious, but uh, it was just incredible to see uh, the transformation the program, you know, was going through then and and continues to go through because it's it's never quite staying the same. Every time I go back, some is new, some is completely out of place. I can't find my way around anymore. It's uh, it's pretty awesome, though, and the the team is also growing that way in terms of recruiting. It's an entirely different world now, but to have been there at the time and to uh, begin uh, inducted with my teammates from the 2010 squad – in the uh, University of Oregon Hall of Fame this weekend is just it, it's going to be great to see all those guys and to celebrate those moments. The uh, the the fact that you guys were the last team to go undefeated in conference play, um, you know, that put put a feather in your cap. I mean, you were in the middle of that. You guys were on a roll. You obviously made it to the BCS championship game. What did that feel like week to week? It was it was really every week presented a different challenge, and I think when uh, Coach Kelly iterated, you know, every week is the Super Bowl. It really was for us that season, and it had to be. Um, even you know, er, we really did like adopt the faceless opponent kind of thing to a to a point where we were basically brainwashed. I think uh, that every single game was our Super Bowl, and man, we got pretty close to uh, to winning the big one too. So that was a really special season, and a lot of special players that made it happen. Chip, uh, you know, he always came on the show and he would talk about that Super Bowl and one win, this is all that matters. He probably preached that on the inside, but was there, was there any kind of, like, as a player, when you're looking, like, week to week, if it wasn't USC, if it wasn't Washington, did you have guys peeking ahead or did they buy into what Chip was saying? No, I think everybody bought in um, and, and that's what made, you know, a lot of those teams really special and, uh, it, you know, you could tell the weeks that we weren't completely tuned in all the way because it wasn't all there. You know, I think we, we really squeaked out a win down at Cal that, uh, you know, it made us reflect on our preparation and then made us prepare that much harder uh, in the weeks coming out because we realized, you know, we went into a tough situation and, and just barely came out with a win. Yeah, I remember that game, 15-13 in Berkeley. They damn near ruined your season. Yeah, pretty close, but hey, pulled it out. That's what, what, what matters is you get the W at the end of the day, John. All right, let's t- let's talk about this new thing you're doing. You're going down there. You're going into the Hall of Fame with all your teammates. You guys are going to take a victory lap, all that stuff. But also, you've been doing some stand-up comedy. Now, let's go to the origin of this. When did this start? When did you first get the idea, like, hey, I might want to try this or take a class? Well, I've always kind of wanted to go and do stand-up, and it was never really kind of a fear thing, but I've, I've always just respected the art form enough that – I just knew I wasn't ready for it. And then when the pandemic hit, I really kind of worried, like, man, did I did I miss my opportunity? Is this never going to come back? And uh, so I had an opportunity up here to take a, a five-week course at Laugh's uh, Comedy Club. And, uh, you know, through May, June, and then finally in July and August, they just started getting up and trying to do two to three open mics a week and then just really trying to hone in on all the stuff I've been writing for years and years and actually putting it to some kind of good use. Give us an idea when you go in, like you, you take a class, you know, you go in, like what is that that first experience like for you? It's really just getting up on stage and getting comfortable with who you are and, and what you have to say. I think that's all it really is. It's an opportunity to get good stage time with people that are encouraging and can give great feedback. And there's a really great community up here once you really start getting into open mics and going out there and just giving it the opportunity, you start seeing the people that are really committed 
And the great thing is seeing someone go from, you know, telling a joke one time and there's maybe something there, but they're not getting many laughs and then seeing really craft it into something that just makes the whole room just lift and uh, stand up and clap. And, and there's something really special about that process. Give me an idea. What what don't we know about stand-up that you maybe learned early on? You were like, oh, I never even thought of that. Well, honestly, the best part is, is it's cheaper than therapy. And, you know, like you don't have to go uh, scheduling it, go and, you know, like betterhelp.com. Like I'm, I'm running out of my subscription here. So <laughs> it's been really, really therapeutic, I think. That's the thing. People, people try and make it like, uh, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so scared to get on stage. But once you do it a couple times, it's almost like, uh, you know, you're almost encouraged to, to try and get some booze once in a while, John. Give us an idea. Nick Cody with us, former Oregon offensive lineman, grew up in Brush Prairie, Washington, Hawkinson High School. You're 6'5". You were 6'5", 3'10", when you were playing. Now, you get up on I'm stage. Pre- I'm pretty much 6'5", 3'10", now, John. Jeez, okay. Come on. <laughs> okay. So you get up on stage. I got to think you don't look like the average comedian. Like, you're giant. You're like the bouncer. Yeah, I know. They're they're usually up there wondering if I'm looking for somebody in the crowd that's uh, acting out or, you know, who's heckling. But, no, I, I get up there, and uh, honestly, John, I'm, I'm just – I get up there, and, you know, I, I let some of those jokes speak for themselves. Sometimes it's a punchline because uh, I love to make fun of myself. But the, the thing is, is just going up there and just being yourself more than just that physical presence. And uh, sometimes, you know, you don't want to be too sticky, but I, I have a couple jokes that, uh, you know, certainly get – heightened by uh, my size, and I love to joke about my looks, uh, particularly with the Seattle dating scene. They call it the Seattle freeze up here, but, man, I've, I've been melting that stuff for a long time. Let me ask you, would your teammates be surprised that you're telling jokes on stage? No, I, I don't think so, and uh, I'm hoping I can get a couple of them to come out Saturday after the BYU game and tell some jokes at my open mic at Ranchito Grill. Um, I think a couple guys, uh, you know, have dabbled in stand-up before, would certainly be good at it. But I, I encourage, honestly, anyone that wants to get up and try it to go do it because we're all capable of it. It's a great hobby. And like I said before, it's cheaper than therapy. Nick Cody is with us. Uh, what are they telling you as far as what will happen at the uh, at the uh, induction ceremony for this 2010 team? What is happening? Well, I know uh, this time tomorrow, I think I'll be in the HDC complex checking everything out um, on a little tour there. And then tomorrow evening, you get to go and do Matthew Knight Arena, have a ceremony. Uh, my family's getting to come to that, which is pretty special. And, uh, yeah, we get to go to the BYU game and get honored on the field in between the first and second quarter, which is pretty awesome. After the game, Oregon Decks, open mic, BYU post game. you're calling it, at the Ranchito Grill in Springfield, Oregon. This is on yep. uh, Mohawk Boulevard. Uh, I will tweet yep. it out. 750 The Game will tweet it out. Um, you know, I, I think it's – is this your first, like, real appearance, or how much have you done up in Seattle? Well, I mean, let's see. I, I'm, I'm definitely in the 30s now of open mic appearances, and th- this uh-huh. will be my first time, like, really taking on hosting duties, uh, bringing down uh, my friend and com- comic uh, Noah Dino Dad Rubin, and uh, we'll be co-hosting the event, raffling some stuff off, but it's completely free to attend and uh, definitely encouraged to come and sign up between 6.30 and 7, and uh, the show will get on its way uh, around 7 o'clock. But yeah, basically my first time uh, where I'll uh, get, into, get the opportunity to cut people off instead of being cut off, which I really right. look forward to. Hey, let me ask you, like, you know, you've done these, you said 30 open mics. 
What's the difference between a good performance where you go and you you leave the stage and you go, I just killed it, or a performance when like you just leave and go, I don't know what happened, it didn't work. Yeah, that's the great thing about football in my experience, John, is uh, when you've given up a sack or a false start in front of 50 to 100,000 people, which I have done multiple times, um, yeah, I, I'm not that phased by it. Uh, I try to record everything I do and then go back when it feels right and go see if there was something there, something I can pull from it. But most of the time, you just you know the train wrecks when they happen. You just let them happen, and uh, it's, it's fun for everyone because just like a train wreck, you can't look away. So everybody that's there that that's nervous that they're going to bomb is like, okay, well, at least he got it out of the way. So you feel like you're doing someone a favor when it all goes wrong. Yeah, good good job with that. Nick Cody, uh, I wish you the best. Uh, I will promote the heck out of this thing. Ranchito Grill in Springfield after the game on Saturday. If you're a Duck fan, go see Nick Cody and friends who are doing an open mic. Good luck to you, man. Break a leg. Appreciate it, John. And I already have, man. My knee. You, everybody's gonna see. I'm already limping out on the field. Everybody's been saying that so much. It's manifested. But I appreciate <laughs> you having me on, John. Love it. There it is, Nick Cody. Guys, would you ever do an open mic at a comedy show? No. Uh, I did think it was interesting that he said um, that anybody could do it. I don't really agree with that. I mean, I would feel so uncomfortable going up there and like trying to make people laugh. I just feel like it'd be really hard. But um, I mean, it's, it's cool. Like, I do understand like how it's a little therapeutic for him and all that kind of stuff. But mm, I don't think I'm, I'm don't think I'm down. I wrote some jokes for him like weeks and weeks ago. He was taking this comedy class, and I said, you know what? Let me write some jokes. Because you know, I, he sent me a video of his routine, and I said, let me let me do a couple things, and. I sent him some. I, he didn't use them. And so I was like, you know what? You're not going to use my material? I'm, I'm going to stop writing for you. Sean, could you get up and do an open mic? Yes. I, uh, I'm pretty confident. I'm not confident I could do a lot of things, but I do think that I would be a, a solid stand-up comedian. In we fact, should, I have some jokes. Like, I'm not going to share them, but uh, you know, I have some jokes that like, if, if I were put in that situation on the spot that I could go to. There, there was a joke in there, like when I was talking to Nick Cody, and I said, "Look at your size, whatever." There's a whole bit he could do about being the bouncer, like the comedian didn't show up. I'm the bouncer, and he could go into a whole thing about, you know, because of his size, six five three ten. There aren't comedians who are six five three ten. You don't see that, so he's got to address that, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think he's, I think it's, I don't know actually. Now that I think about it, it's kind of just easy, easy punchlines. I think he wants to be more of a real, real jokester, you know. Mm. We'll see. I think you got to address it because I think people in the crowd are looking at you. They're going like, it's like when you get a comedian who is, you know, let's say you got a guy who's six six, a buck ten. You got to kind of address the fact that you weigh 110 pounds and you're that tall. So I think conversely, if you are like an offensive lineman's build, you you know, you kind of there's some natural stuff. And I don't know if it's low hanging fruit, take it. And he's probably it. he's probably got some funny stories about you know just being so big and life being more difficult for that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Well, go check him out if you want. If you're going to be in Eugene for the game, not a bad idea to stick around after the uh, midday kickoff and what should be a really good football game to see Nick Cody and friends at the Ranchito Grill in Springfield um, open mic night. Uh, Dan Lanning is coming up, the Oregon Ducks football coach. I got so many questions for Lanning. I want to talk to him about this week's game with BYU. Um, I want to ask him about the soul-searching he may have done after week one, Georgia. Uh, Kirby Smart's comments in the post-game. I want to ask him, too, you know, like, going into this week, they've had kind of bookend games with the Georgia game and the Eastern Washington game. 
going into this week, like, how has the preparation changed? And for a, a, a relatively inexperienced coaching staff, as far as head coaches go, coordinators go, you know, what did they? What did Dan Lanning learn in the first two weeks of the season? Like, what you know, there has to be something as a head coach that he has learned. I know that any time I've ever tried to do something I hadn't done before, it moves fast. Like, we can all relate to that. When you first get your driver's license and you get on the freeway, everything's going fast. There's a lot happening. Now, you know, you've been driving a while. You get on the freeway, it's not a big deal. Like, the game kind of slows down for you if you're in that situation. So I want to ask Lanning all about that, plus what he sees on film with BYU He's coming up. Uh, for those of you who have friends who are Duck fans who would appreciate hearing this interview, shoot a text to your buddies, your friends, your neighbors. Tell them, hey, get to Kanzano's uh, show. Dan Lanning, Oregon coach, about to come on. Ducks coach coming up next. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Kanzano on 750 The Game. I'm a big believer that we need to celebrate even the small victories in life. Your kids get a good report card, celebrate it. Get a raise at work, celebrate it. No traffic, celebrate it. Dan Landing, University of Oregon coach, joining us. All right, you came home last Saturday night. You got your first win as a head coach. I imagine your kids dogpiling you in the living room. <laughs> um, not quite. Yeah, not quite. They, 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 they certainly gave me congratulations after the game. You know, we had a couple of recruits on campus, got to hang out with them right after uh, the game, and then I came and caught the end of the BYU game. You know, that was a, that was a nice battle to watch. You watched the end of that. What would you, what'd you think? And, by the way, when you watch a game, you're watching the end of the game on TV, and then you get the film later where you can see everything you want to see. How different is that? Um, at the end of that one, there wasn't too many differences, uh, but sometimes you certainly catch a couple things you didn't see before. You know, I was just hoping that game would go in eight, you know, into eight overtimes or nine overtimes, but, uh, hope those guys might be a little worn out, but, uh, no, it was, it was, uh, you know, good to be able to catch the end of that from a TV copy standpoint and then go back and watch the, the coaches film. BYU is pretty good on defense. Schematically, what do they do? What do you see on film? You know, it's just it's it's certainly a different um, you know defensive you know concept. They're not a I said this before, but not a cookie cutter operation. They uh, they shift, they motion uh, almost like you would offensively at times. You know, they'll stem their fronts. They match people with people. If you're bigger personnel, they're going to be bigger personnel as well. But uh, they do a good job of defending the edges. You know, they have a lot of hats outside, so it's hard to get perimeter plays on them, and uh, they play with great vision like zone break defense where they can really break on the ball. Um, a lot of guys seeing the ball at the same time. I think that's why they capitalize on some takeaways and uh, are able to swarm to the ball like they do. Did you learn more about your team in week one or week two? That's a great question. I don't I don't know. I, I You know, I, what I guess I would probably say is I learned more about my team in preparation for week two mm. uh, after week one, if that makes sense. Not necessarily yeah. the game. I think everybody wants to focus on the game, but – I was excited to see our guys face some adversity early in the season. And then, you know, you come out there for a Monday practice and you say, what's it going to look like? Um, those guys went to work. And it's not a – we're by no means a finished product. Uh, we have a lot more prep and practice and work to do between now and the last game of the season. But I was uh, certainly pleased with the work they put in last week and this past week. 
Yeah, and I think, too, like, you know, I always try to learn. I go back and listen to the shows. I go back and read what I write. Like, as a coach, you're evaluating your team. You're probably also evaluating yourself and your staff, aren't you? Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest things that that we are tasked with doing, you know, as coaches is uh, a lot of people are going to go out there and they're going to do the same thing every single day. They're going to, you know, they just clock in and clock out for work, and that's certainly not our operation. We want to be able to do it the best. Uh, if you do it the best, that means you're constantly assessing yourself and evaluating how you can be better. Now, I, I sometimes I need to step away from work. I'll go get a coffee somewhere. I got I have coffee at home. My wife says we have coffee here. Why do you need to go? I go. I I need to get away and change the scenery. Do you ever need to step away from football? Get a workout? Go for a walk? Go for a run? See a movie? What do you do? I need to do it more. Uh, the season it's hard. You know, during the season it's really hard. Um, you know, our nutritionist has these new, like, hard-boiled eggs that she's been buying. Okay. Um, it's it's kind of cool. So I'll just do, like, a small stroll down towards the locker room, grab some hard-boiled eggs, and then go back up to my office. I, I know that's not a long walk, but that's a nice, like, hey, I've been staring at the film for a while here. Uh, need to walk down the hallway and grab a hard-boiled egg. So. What, what, are there something special <laughs> about them, or are they just, are they just hard-boiled no. normal? Well, I don't eat very much during the season. Like, I generally lose weight during the season, so i got to figure out a way to kind of keep my – you know, I, I pack on weight. It's like I'm getting ready for hibernation in the summer. You know what I mean? Like, I put on, I put on some serious pounds in the summer and in prep leading up to season, and then once the season comes around, it's just coffee for me really until, like, night, right? And then when you get home at 11 or 12 at night, you walk in and you hope there's something cool in the fridge that you can eat, right? But I generally lose – I lose a lot of weight during during football season. Um, but, yeah, I think these hard-boiled eggs are going to help me maintain my weight this year. That's my plan. Dan Lanning, grizzly bear, is with us uh, as he hibernates <laughs> and gets ready for the for the season. Uh, look, let's talk about your offense. Uh, I know everybody wants to make you a defensive-minded guy, but I thought, you know, your offense had a really nice time of things last week. And what did, what did you leave the game feeling great about? Well, you know, it's hard to put together some of the drives that uh, our guys were able to put together. And I think it means you have to be operating kind of as one, you know, we, we left the game and we said, wow, we were able to kind of go the long, hard way. You know, but a lot of times you'll say that defensively say, Hey, can these guys really truly go down the field and create plays? Um, but eventually they're going to make a mistake. Our offense didn't make a lot of mistakes. You know, they were able to drive the ball down the field, uh, you know, get a lot of first downs, but not necessarily a lot of explosive plays. Um, so I think that's something probably that we're looking for uh, moving forward is creating some more of those, those uh, you know, positive explosive plays to where you don't necessarily um, have to go eight plays for 80 yards or 10 plays for, um, you know, 57 yards. We're looking to create some more, say, three plays, 60-yard, you know, drives. Uh, that being said, when you do that, I think that's pretty impressive from an operational standpoint. So continue to see us operate at a high level is something I'm looking for and then create some more explosives in the process. Do you Are you finding, you know, I know when we started the season we went, hey, there's like five guys in the backfield that could carry the ball. Are, are you starting to establish a guy or two pecking order-wise running the football? I don't know that, uh, I don't know that we completely have yet. Um, again, for me, it's all about winning football, right? And how many guys do you have that can play winning football? The more guys you have, Obviously, the benefit that is to our program, you know, if you limit yourself and say, well, these are the only two guys that can touch the ball, then you're probably doing yourself a disservice if you have other guys that are certainly capable. 
Um, and I, I, that's why I feel like with our group, we have, you know, strength in numbers. We have a bunch of guys that can help us and benefit us uh, out there on the field, and that's how we're going to use them. You know, I liked what you said after the opening week, and you kind of said, okay, you know, here, here's here's the benchmark, there's the bar, you know, let's see how we respond. You know, you got an idea of what, you know, you knew what Georgia football was about. I think the rest of us sort of saw, okay, there's work to do. Um, were, you talked about the response your guys had, you know, because I think there's a real risk there in week one, the way that went, that, you know, you maybe you lose some guys, but it looked like everybody kind of put their head down and said, all right, we have work to do and, and let's get going. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, nobody's going to feel sorry for you. We certainly don't feel sorry for ourselves. We have work to do, like you said, and our guys embrace that. Um, you know, the benchmark's really high there. That, that's a really good team. And for us to be what we want to be, you know, before we got work to do. And I think that's what every one of our guys understood. And, and they went out there on Monday practice and said, let's go. Dan Lanning with us, University of Oregon football coach. Bo Nix, um, were you, you know, obviously came back statistically, looked good in week two. Week one, I was worried about him after the game. I know you know him way better than I do. Um, you know, what do you tell, tell a kid like Bo Nix after a tough game like that? You know, it's, uh, he, he didn't play the way he wanted to play, but I it, it's interesting how much attention, obviously, it's the quarterback position, and that's yeah. the way it works. But there's a lot of people that didn't play very well or the way we want to play in that game, and a lot of coaching that we could have done better uh, as a staff. So he certainly doesn't shoulder all that blame. All I wanted him to know, and every one of our players know, is I'm your head coach, and I'm responsible for what we put on the field, and we can be better, um, you know, individually and as a coaching staff and, and us as players. So he doesn't shoulder all that. Um, you know, the result of, of game one, he was part of that, just like I was part of that. But we both know what we're capable of, and we can go out there and perform better, and I think he understands that. Yeah, I think sometimes coaches will say, you know, they're not they're not nervous as game day approaches because, hey, now it's about the players. We've done what we can do to prepare them. It's about them now, and they're very relaxed. How You know, how, how were you last week as the kickoff approach to Eastern Washington? Did you feel... Feel good about it, you know? Did you? I guess what I'm asking is, did you see that coming? Because you guys looked great. I'm nervous before every game. I've never played in a football game where I'm not nervous before. I'm always thinking about, you know, what's next? What what can we do better? What could go wrong? What could go right? Uh, I, I, if I go inside right now and I, you know, I, if I get home later on the night and I play checkers with Titan, you know, I'm gonna be nervous about competing with them. That's just that's just my nature. So uh, I never really get comfortable. That's that's not who I am. Yeah, your dad told me your senior year of high school, you guys made the playoffs. You went on this long trip. The whole town took a bus. You went going over to play this powerhouse rival Missouri school. You, what's the name of it? You know Harrisonville. it. Harrisonville. Yeah, Harrisonville. Okay. All right. It didn't go the way you planned. I thought about that no. after, after Georgia game. I thought about that because I thought, you know, little Daniel Lanning, yeah. he's had adversity before in his life. Do you draw on that? Man, that Harrisville game. Gosh, that was frustrating. They uh you know, they ran a reverse like on the very first series and I had a pair like after the season's over, you know, I sometimes you get to keep your jersey and you get to keep some of your you know, some of your memorabilia. I had a pair of pants that my football pants that I wore in that game and they were stained blue. They're still probably stained blue today because I never washed them after that game. I just kinda wanted to remember how it went wrong, you know what I mean? Yeah. And performing after that. But uh the Harris Mook, the team, you learn from moments like that and give you a chance to get better.
I think it's interesting because some people don't want to think about it, don't want to forget it, but you you wanted to keep those pants because that sort of signified, hey, uh, I I have growth to make here. Yeah, I mean, I, I've probably watched this Georgia game. Um, I mean, that's I I the one we're all in on. I've probably watched that game more than anybody else because there's so many opportunities for us to grow. Every, I said this before, but everybody wants to work on their strengths. Nobody really wants to focus on their weaknesses, right? If I'm really good at throwing the ball, you go out there and throw it. If you want to really good at catching the ball you would go out there and catch passes well how about we work on the things we're not great at and uh that's what i hope to pride myself in as a coach and i hope that's what our players do as well and i think they've done that you know now that being said byu's a really good team you know we're, we're gonna have to bring our absolute best effort in this game you know they have a lot of great talent um a lot of experience um but our guys i think are, are ready for that challenge Dan Lanning, uh, I appreciate you joining us. I will see you at the stadium. Good luck to you this week. I think it's a, I think it's a kind of game where we're gonna we're gonna kind of see where you guys are two weeks later, and I think it's a great opportunity for your team. Thank you. I appreciate it, John. Have a great one. All right, Dan Lanning, there he is, hard-boiled eggs and all. Love that. He's hibernating. He hibernates. He packs the uh, weight on for football season where he loses the weight. Uh, and I love that little bit at the end, too, where he says, you know, he's watched that Georgia game more than anybody else. Then you can hear him as he kind of doesn't want to disrespect BYU, right? And then he turns, he suddenly wakes up and goes, and BYU is a heck of a team. But I get what he's doing there because anybody who's got any kind of personal pride, anybody who has a professional pride that that is burning in the way that you can tell, like – Dan, he knew that high school game, the blue pants, the reverse play on the first play like it was yesterday. Anybody has got that kind of pride would go back and pour over when things didn't go right and want to know, all right, what could I have done here? What could I have done there? Now, I think Georgia in week one, I frankly think it was about Georgia having a six foot seven inch 270-pound tight end and guys like that and a corner that is going to be a first-round draft pick. And uh, a couple of offensive linemen that will play on Sundays. And in in the end, I think I don't know would have mattered if Vince Lombardi was over on the Oregon sideline. I think you could have put Dan Lanning and Kirby Smart and said, "Hey, coaching staff, switch sides." Score might have been the same. But I still admire the drive of a coach who says, "You know, I've watched that game more than anybody," uh, because it tells me that he's looking and looking and looking. As he said, the things you don't do well, those are the things you got to focus on. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Dan Landing, University of Oregon coach, joined us last segment. Anna, you were, uh, were kind of eavesdropping on that. Steven, Sean, you guys were here for it. Uh, what do you think of Lanning's appearance? I think he's very grounded. You know, I, I think he's pragmatic and realistic and is just, I, I like that he's calm. He's not, like, he's somebody who, like, I feel like is comfortable in his own skin. And um, I, I think he's a good leader. I'll, I'll see if it turns into victories. Yeah, he comes across as, you know, he doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, right? You know, you could get really low after that Georgia loss in your first game as a coach, 
But I think he understands, like, you know, this is a process. This is my first game. And now he could get really high after his first win at Eastern Washington. And you kind of wanted him to celebrate it. And he's like, yeah, you know, whatever. It was awesome. It was my first win. But, you know, we're on to the next one. we got to get better. So I think that's good as a coach, right? Like, you want your coaches to be down to earth and not super emotional. We see what the problems that emotion can have in sports, especially. So to have a head coach, the leader of the team, not being overly emotional, I think is good. I also like how he, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like he takes himself too seriously. You know, like when he was talking about uh, how he has those hard-boiled eggs to help, you know, keep him, uh, keep his weight up during the season. Like, you know, it's just not, it's not all football for him in an interview like that, which I, I appreciate, you know, a coach that is able to kind of make jokes. And uh, there was a couple of couple of moments in that interview that, uh, that were definitely, definitely positive for me. I like the stuff that's outside the box. You know, I like him talking about the blue pants in high school and that game, like he knew, like you could feel the pain in his voice when he was talking about losing that high school game. For people who don't know, I wrote, I called his dad up and I ended up writing about landing before the season. And his dad, I said to his dad, I said, give me an example of a time when things just went sideways for your kid. Like show me, like, you know, dealing with adversity. He And dad went right to that game against Harrisonburg or whatever that school was that landing was talking about because that school was like the equivalent what's the equivalent of a Jesuit in the Portland metropolitan area. It's the powerhouse. It's the biggest school. It's the school that, you know, kids at the beginning of the year go, oh, they're going to be in the, they're going to be tough to beat. And Lanning's high school is a small town high school in rural Missouri. And they got into that title game and they somehow made it to the state championship game and they got boat raced. And young Daniel Lanning did not take it well after the game. Like it was, you could tell now it stuck with him. He said he didn't wash the pants after the game. <laughs> Kept the memory. Probably still has them on. You know, probably still wears them. Puts them on, runs around the house you know, on a Friday night. <laughs> yeah, some people keep their trophies from high school. You know, the medals that they win at track events. He's kept the pants from a loss, a devastating loss. Well, it's a reminder, though. Like, you know, because we all, that, what is the thing? Like, I, I've been around really good coaches who won't put any of their trophies up. Yeah. You know, Caleb Porter, the former Timbers coach who won a MLS Cup. I went to his house one time. He didn't have anything up. And I said, you, have, you were coach of the year. You guys won a championship. And he's like, when I'm done, when I'm done, I'll put it up. He didn't want it, doesn't want it around him, doesn't want the reminders of the success around him. Instead, uh, these guys dwell on the negative. And I think a lot of successful people are motivated by the fear of failure and the fear of, you know, you know basically not be, being found out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the competitiveness, right? Like, you can tell that that loss really bothers him, and so he's always going to hold that. And so I think it's good, you know, as a coach, like he wants to win every single game and he's going to be competitive and work hard because a lot of the most successful athletes, they like, you know, they, they like not losing more than they like winning, right? And I think that's kind of where Dane Lanning is, where he just hates losing so much that it's going to stick with him. also think it's interesting he watched the Georgia game more than anybody. He's not watching the Eastern Washington game. Because they they put up a seventy burger, you mm -hmm. know they scored seventy points. It was too easy. He's going back. He's watching the Georgia game, and then he kind of caught himself at the end of the interview, and he was like, you know, I've watched that tape more than anything. And then he's starting, and then I could hear him go, "Oh, I don't want BYU to think I don't take them seriously." Mm -hmm. But he's like, "BYU is a good team." He went right to BYU, you know, <laughs> and I thought that was interesting as well. I I Stephen thinks they're going to win easily. 
I think they're going to win, but I I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to expect from Oregon. And that's not normal in week two. I usually have a really – like last year, week two, they went to Ohio State. I knew who they were when they went to Ohio State. Mm-hmm. I don't know now. Here we are in week three. I don't know who they are. Do you have a better sense after that interview with them of who they are and who he is as a coach? Yeah, I, I know who he is. Learn about that. I know who he is. I don't know what this team is yet. I'm going to find out on Saturday. I think we're all going to find out on Saturday. If they go in there and they play really well and they look uh, efficient and Bo Nix looks good and they punch BYU in the nose and they win that game, all of a sudden we're all going to go, what's the ceiling? Nine wins? Ten wins? Like, we'll be right back there. It, because week one, they got a Georgia team. It wasn't a fair fight. You know, and then it wasn't a fair fight in week two. They were so much better than Eastern Washington. So there's somewhere in between Eastern Washington and Georgia. We're going to find out where. And it's it's week three, and this is going to be Dan Lanning's first, like, coach, like, competitive, close, you know, like, and really important coaching decisions games because you you mentioned it. They've faced the extremes now, the be- probably the best team in the country, and then a team that doesn't belong on the field with Oregon. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, it's, it's, it's already week three, and, you know, Dan Lanning, he's going to be making some big decisions in this game for the first time, really. John, you have the perspective of having known, like, in a really unique way, Cristobal, Chip Kelly, Mark Helfrich, uh, Bellotti. How does he compare to those coaches in terms of his philosophy, his how he gets the, the team motivated? Like, who did those kids play for when they were under their coaches? And will these kids be playing for Dan Lanning or themselves? Like, how does he how does he compare to those guys? I, I think Mario Cristobal was more evolved as a CEO type, you know, because of his experience at Alabama coaching under Nick Saban. And then he had been a head coach before, and this was his second time. So I think Mario Cristobal was super appreciative of the opportunity. He knew how valuable the opportunity was. So I saw him week to week basically going, I'm not going to squander this opportunity. This is a great opportunity. Uh Dan Lanning is more, uh, I think, a little more in it. He's younger, doesn't quite know what he doesn't know with some things. I think he's still kind of figuring out how to be a head coach. I think we're going to see that. We saw it with Chip Kelly. I watched Chip Kelly do the same thing. Chip Kelly, when he first came on the scene at Oregon, I don't think he handled discipline very well. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he had some problems. He had some problems with some players off the field who got in trouble. The kicker got in a fight. There was this other thing. Yeah. You know, he didn't suspend a player who got uh, arrested. Mm-hmm. And it was a big kind of a – there was kind of some questions about, like, hey, where did the structure of the program go? Yeah. And by year two or three, Chip Kelly had locked down. He changed. Right. Because I remember we had a big argument in year one. <laughs> where he came on radio and we were arguing on radio and he was yelling at me and then he called me off air and we got in an argument because it was the off season he had a player get arrested he didn't suspend the player he yeah. said what's the point of suspending the guy we don't have a game uh-huh. and i say you suspend him so that other guys in your team know that if you get arrested you get suspended that's what you do and then he said well we're gonna see and i said well i wonder what your guys like where their heads are and he goes well you're gonna call back and apologize to me if it, and it was a big <laughs> argument so by year two, he had a player get in trouble. He suspended him. I texted him. I said, huh, like, look <laughs> at you. Like, he learned, though. Right. And he learned, and now you see him. He has kind of a structure for his program. Sure. Mark Helfrich, bless his soul, was a really good coordinator. 
He just didn't have that thing that you need a head coach to have, that leadership thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I would trust Helfrich to recruit a player. I would trust him to work one-on-one with a player. Mm -hmm. I'd trust him to game plan, coach practices, call plays during games. But I don't want that guy to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. He just wasn't a CEO. Some people aren't. Mm -hmm. It's no indictment of him personally. Um, I didn't know Willie Taggart enough. He wasn't here long enough. I forgot. Like, he, I didn't even mention Taggart. Right, I forgot. Taggart wanted, you know, he played the game. Yeah, you know? sure. He, he played the game. And, uh, you know, Taggart was interesting. Yeah. Because he and I were, you know, kind of behind the scenes. You know, initially when he first got here, I reached out to him. He didn't respond. Mm-hmm. And then I just texted him. I made it a point to text him, like, once a week. Mm-hmm. It, regardless if he would reply or not, I just sent him a text. Right. Sent him a text. Sent him a text. And after about four weeks, he realized, this guy's not going away. <laughs> and so he finally replied, and he said, okay, you and I will talk. And we will, or a restraining order. Yeah, you and I are going to talk. I didn't, like, bombard him, but I one know, text yeah. a week going, yeah. you know, with something I was thinking about. Right. And I kind of just let him know I'm not going anywhere. Like, you're just going to get a text a week from me if not, if this is how it's going to go. But I didn't get to know him well enough to know, you know, what he was about, really. And then how about Bilotti? Bilotti was a CEO. Yeah. I didn't know. I, I got the feeling with Bilotti because I knew him towards the end of his tenure. I got here in 2002, and then he leaves like six years later. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I had about five, six seasons with him. Um, he really enjoyed being the CEO of the program. I think he misses it. And he was it. good at it. Yeah, and he was good at he it. He was good. The opposite of Helfrich. Really good at it, delegated, liked being the guy out front, yeah. liked being the CEO. Here's the little dirty little secret, though. And I think he misses it even today. I think it's why he kind of pops up around it. Right. I don't think he loved it. Like, I don't think Mike Bellotti loved the actual yeah. kind of the hands-on, the recruiting in the off-season, whatever. And he I think we the role, the role, yeah. you know, but he liked being the CEO. Okay. And, you know, some guys are good, like, working behind the scenes. Right. He was good, like, working over the top of the operation. Right. And I great think great with boosters, great with great boosters, at all the events, the handshaking yep. and all that strong with the media. Okay. So where does Dan landing fit with the, with all those guys? Like he's figuring it out. Okay. He's figuring it out. And the thing that Bilotti had is he had Nick Eliotti as his defensive coordinator. Fantastic. Yeah. The offensive coordinator position revolved a little bit. He had Gary Croton in there. Andy Ludwig is now at Utah came in there for a spell and then chip Kelly. So he was kind of tinkering going, I don't know what I want on offense. Let me bring in a new guy. Let me bring in a new guy. I get the feeling that Dan Lanning at some point is going to have to step back and be a head coach because I feel a little bit of him in it. You can see him on the sideline. He's very emotional on the sideline. Mm-hmm. He's got, you know, he's a little bit more like Cristobal in that way mm-hmm. that, you know, they're in it. Yeah. You know, and he clearly like I think he does enjoy the game. Like he's yeah. passionate about the game and the process of being a head coach. Yes. Doesn't it seem like? Yeah. And did you hear his voice? Yeah. I wondered if yeah. he was like under the weather. No, he's been yelling. You know, not all not all coaches sound that way. Mm-hmm. He's been yelling. There's always a guy or two or three on the staff who yells. Nick Aliotti, former Oregon D coordinator, he was the yeller. He was the guy. He didn't have a voice by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And Lanning's like, what are we in, week three? Mm-hmm. He sounds like, you know, he's lost it, mm-hmm. you know. So we're going to find out. I, I think he's still – we're going to watch him grow. That's the best part. He's the youngest coach in Power 5 football. Mm-hmm. We're gonna get to watch him grow, good or bad. You know, that's what it's about. Leave it here. You get the BFT. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano. 
Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Atlanta Falcons have signed former Oregon State running back B.J. Baylor to their practice squad. He'll join uh, the Marcus Mariota operation tonight, Thursday night football on Amazon. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Amazon is hired, as I said at the top of the show uh, earlier, Amazon's hired thousands of people to uh, work their new call centers that will be available to take troubleshooting calls from people who are trying to figure out how to stream the damn game. Uh, and what do you think of that, Anna? There's going to be a hurdle there. <laughs> That's uh, uh, I don't want to be on the receiving end of those calls because anybody that has talked someone through that kind of process, you know that it's painful. <laughs> yes, painful. But yeah, let's see. Let's see how it goes. It'll be a good test. My. Uh, my mom, when she got an iPad for the first time a few years ago, <laughs> I'd get on the phone with her, and I'd be trying to talk her through, like, troubleshooting her Apple ID or whatever. Yes. I finally gave up, and I told her to FedEx me her iPad. <laughs> she, she sent it to me via FedEx. I fixed it, and then I sent it back. It took me, like, five minutes to fix it, but it was well worth whatever it cost to FedEx that damn thing because I was ready to... <laughs> Like, beat my head against the wall. I'm certain it's like God's test of whether we are good children as we try to walk parents through, you know, new devices. It really is. Because, yeah. like, if you if you lose it on your parent who's, like, 60, 70, 80 years old, yeah, yeah there's going to be a reckoning someday for that. Yep. So, Stephen <laughs> and Sean, um, you guys are uh, on the uh, y- younger end of the scale here. Um when you talk about Amazon streaming a game, how, how problematic is this going to be for people tonight as Amazon exclusively has the Thursday night football game? Um, I mean, I, you know, there's obviously going to be people that struggle, but it shouldn't be too struggle-worthy in my mind. It's just a couple little clicks here and there and it should be on, right? <laughs> okay. So said the uh, guy who knows how to stream. Uh, yeah, that might be my, maybe I'm underestimating. I don't know. Give out your number. <laughs> uh, I, I though. And here's Stephen's advice. As Mabel is calling, going, I can't watch Justin Herbert tonight. Stephen goes, it's just a couple of clicks. Click there and there. I mean, come on. What are we doing here? As a public service, Stephen will personally be taking your calls tonight. Yeah, just, face, just FaceTime me. DM me. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, FaceTime me. Oh, well, you probably don't know how to FaceTime either. Uh, okay. <laughs> I love it. We just we'll send you over. You can go door to door. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be like DoorDash, but I'm just delivering. Uh, you know, Amazon Prime. Instructions. There he is. Do you guys think this works? Like, what's what's the story going to be tomorrow? Or, or is it going to be a bunch of people complaining? Or is it going to be people going? You know what? That was really cool because Amazon's also going to debut some new features in this game that are supposed to be pretty cool. We want we want nothing more as sports fans than just to you know. After work, sit on the couch and just easily put on the game. And I feel like that's it, there's a hurdle tonight, you know? Like, instead of going to, for me, maybe YouTube TV, it's, you know, you have to go to the Prime Video app, and then you probably have to sign in. A lot of people won't have Prime Video. They're not prepared for it. So it's just, it, you know, like, 
it, it's always it's one of my biggest pet fee- peeves when I just can't get a sports game on. You know, like the Dolphins were playing on Sunday. I couldn't figure out how to stream it. I feel like a lot of people are going to have that issue tonight, even if it's, you know, like if Amazon's got everything in place. A lot of people don't have Amazon, and, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to struggle to find the app and, you know, find out how to do this. It's new. There's supposed to be one alternate feed that will have an overlay of stats and game information on your TV. And on, on some smart televisions, viewers are going to be able to control their own replays and camera angles. Well, those are the pro users because that's intimidating even yeah. to me. And I'm pretty comfortable with technology. Do you guys know what Dude Perfect is? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. My, my, explain my kids explain love it. Explain Dude Perfect. Uh, so they do a bunch of different trick shots and they've ventured over to like different YouTube episodes. Uh, okay. And they do a live show. They did it in Portland. We actually went with my son. It was awesome. All right, so Dude Perfect is also going to have an alternate channel. So those guys will be doing the game. I can't imagine so. it's going to be great coverage, but it's more for like, hey, your kid like Dude Perfect, come watch the football game now. All right. Let's see what that's about. Anna, you look stressed about this. I am because you pointed out in your writing this morning that only 42% of Internet households have Amazon Prime. Well, good luck to us all. Oh. Leave it here. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, coming up uh, in Portland on 750 The Game, it will be Thursday night football. You won't need Amazon Prime to listen to the football game and the pregame show and all that right here. Justin Herbert against the Kansas City Chiefs. That's what it's going to be about. In this segment, we'll do the five at five, five biggest stories going on. Uh, Tomorrow's show, a real run-up to the college football weekend. You're going to want to be here 3 to 6 p.m. tomorrow for that. Uh, What are we going to talk about here? We're going to talk about the five biggest stories going on in sports. Let's get it going. The five at five. Well, it looks like trouble for Jamal Adams. Seahawks star safety is expected to miss the rest of the season. Suffered an injury to his quadriceps tendon in the opener. The Seahawks have placed him on the in- injured reserve list today. They've signed another defensive back, Tease Tabor, off the Falcons practice squad to take his place. Adams and the Seahawks thought they were going to have a bounce-back season. He had a disappointing season last year. Didn't have a sack in 12 games. But any chance of that ended in the second quarter. He was carted off the field. Jamal Adams expected to miss the rest of the season for the Seahawks. Disappointing. Number two with the 5 at 5, Phil Mickelson said he's considering removing his name from the antitrust lawsuit that has been filed against the PGA Tour. Six-time major champion told reporters that uh, he may remove his name. He says he hasn't done anything yet says he's currently part of the lawsuit. He doesn't know if he's going to stay on it. He said, the only reason for me to stay in is damages, which I don't really want or need. Now, Mickelson is right about that last thing. He signed a deal with LIV Golf that means he doesn't need the money, a couple hundred million dollars. But he's among the 11 who are still part of that lawsuit. See what happens. Sounds like he's softening. Number three in our five at five. How about Kayvon Thibodeau news? Giants rookie pass rusher said he is quote-unquote really confident 
that he'll make his NFL debut on Sunday. Giants' top pick has been limited in practice for the last couple of days, and he missed the opener because of a sprained MCL that he suffered in a preseason game three weeks ago. His coach, Brian Dayball, said that Thibodeau participated in team drills on Wednesday, did a little more today at practice, and the number five overall pick in the draft, he worked on the side with a trainer and he rode a stationary bike during a media session. He said, quote, getting close, end quote. Thibodeau, in his career at Oregon, plagued by injury. Be interesting to see if this follows him into the NFL. Looks like it has. Roger Federer announced his retirement. That's number four on my list of five. 20-time Grand Slam champion will play his final tennis event and then hang it up. He's had some challenges in the last three years. He had some injuries, had some surgeries. He's 41 years old. He's played 1,500 matches in 24 years. He tweeted out to my tennis family and beyond and then uh, put a video out basically saying it's time. A bittersweet decision, he called it. Federer hanging it up. That's number four. Number five in our five at five brings us to Thursday Night Football, which is starting in just a few minutes as Justin Herbert and the Chargers are playing in Kansas City. If you looked up the game, you saw, well, it's a 5-15 kickoff Pacific time and it's on what? Prime video? This is the first game that Amazon Prime will carry exclusively. This is not a simulcast as it was in the past with Fox or ABC, ESPN, NBC. This is Amazon Prime producing the game, owning the rights to the game, and airing the game on Amazon Prime. It's raised some questions about the Pac-12 conference. Could they go all in with a digital streaming service? Probably a little too soon to go all in in 2024, 2025. But I think, you know, we talked to David Carter the USC professor early in the show, he said, look, there's a problem if you're too early on the digital front because you leave money on the table, but there's also a problem if you're too late. I'm reminded of what the Pac-12 conference did a decade ago, 12 years ago, really, when they negotiated their deal with ESPN. Everybody lauded it as this great TV deal. Within two or three years, it was obsolete. It had been surpassed. It was an old deal. The money wasn't there. I don't think that's going to happen this time around with George Klyovkov. I think the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors have learned their lesson. And I would be surprised if there wasn't some digital presence in their media rights package. Amazon? Apple? Both of those are on the table, if you ask me. I also think it could be the kind of deal that puts a chunk of the Pac-12 network content on Apple or Amazon. Or maybe all of the Pac-12 network content there and retains some of the primary tier one rights for ESPN or somebody else. But when I heard the report yesterday from Andrew Marchand of the New York Post, and he said, hey, they are hundreds of millions of dollars apart, they being ESPN and the Pac-12, I did what everybody else did. I immediately went, this is a negotiation. It's public. ESPN isn't happy, doesn't sound happy. What could it be? Feels to me like there's a digital partner on the Pac-12 side that might be willing to pay. That is the fifth thing in our five at five. Those are the five big stories. I want to pepper them back to you guys. Is it a mistake if the Pac-12 goes too much 
with Apple or Amazon, or would it be viewed as forward-thinking, cutting edge? How would you guys spin that publicly? I think it's a little early to do it, to go all in, right? I, I, I like the idea of having maybe, you know, the studio shows or having just those type of shows on a streaming service like Amazon Prime, but to have all your games and stuff like that, I feel like it's a little too early for that. Um, you know, we talked about some of the difficulties that people may have with Amazon Prime tonight with the Thursday night football. I think it's just too early to go all in on it, but I do think a good it would be a good taste of it. Um, and then if it does, you know, is successful at all, then you can kind of go all in later on. I think anybody who's about 55 or younger doesn't have a problem finding a streaming service or understanding Netflix or whatever. And I, so I really think like the movement towards digital is like a five year thing. And then I think everybody five or eight years, and I think everybody's sort of getting it at that point. But I, th I do think that people are, who are over 55 would really probably struggle with it. And I do think that that's a portion of the audience that's important to the NFL. It's important to the Pac-12. It's important to Apple, Amazon, whoever. So I think you're right, like Steven. I think if they could take a core piece of inventory and train people, this is where you find it, here's how you find it, and get people more accustomed to using those things uh, in that service, then I think it would, uh, I think it would behoove the Pac-12 to get to that market or get to that space early in some form or fashion, but not all the way, because I think they're falling into the same trap that they fell into 10 or 12 years ago when they cut a deal and then the deal was outdated two or three years later. I also kind of wonder about the money. MLS got $2.5 guys, for content that really doesn't have that great of ratings. So MLS was probably happy to get that money. Um, you know, they didn't have distribution anyway. So they went, hey, instead of partnering with ESPN and getting all that propaganda that you get with ESPN, we're just gonna, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna take the money. If it's just money that the Pac-12 gets, is that enough? If it's just money, ah, it's a boatload no, of money. No, no, it, to me, it's not. You got to get more than just money in this deal. I understand that you need to make a great deal money-wise to keep these schools, but at some point you need to have some type of connection just to make sure the fans are okay with everything. I think if it's all about money, that could be a problem. I'll be curious. I want you to tune in tonight to Thursday Night Football. Tomorrow, right off the top of the show at 3, I'm going to get your reaction. What did you think of it? Did it work for you? Were you able to find it? Did you, was your phone ringing? Was it your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your grandpa calling you saying, I can't find Justin Herbert on my TV? Like, I want your anecdotal feedback on tomorrow's show. Uh, grab the podcast for this show. Uh, make sure you have a great day. We are back tomorrow with another great show. We got NFL football coming up next right here on this station. The Bald Face Truth not here for a long time, just a good time.